Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think they're a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about all sorts of interesting things about like classical Hollywood and contemporary, and one of us is vaccinated. Woohoo! Uh, and it's also her birthday, so happy birthday, Karen! Thank you. I would like to say that I was very delighted growing up to share this day with Elizabeth Taylor. So not bad, not yeah. bad. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, are are you having a good birthday so far? It's fairly early where you are, but it is. Um, it's only nine fifteen, but so far I've already had donuts, and yeah. It's a good day. Must gonna see nice. my family later. Gonna hang out with some friends, socially distanced, of course. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's funny because, well, not funny. It's actually like just I cannot believe we're still here. But um, last year, the last thing I did with my friends before like quarantine started <laughs> was celebrate my birthday. Uh... And two weeks later, everything shut down, and yeah. they all had their birthdays during quarantine. And every time I'd be like, yeah, okay, but when it comes to Camille's birthday, when it comes to Trey's birthday, we're going to be done with this. And mm. nope, here we are. <laughs> now we all will have had our quarantine birthdays. Oh, God, it's so depressing. Yeah, I think one of the last things that I did was go to a friend's birthday party um, before before quarantine started. And this it was at that point where people were people were talking about COVID. And people mm-hmm. being like, oh, there's this weird disease and like, you know, but it was still in the, in the, well, it's basically the, f- the flu stages yeah. um, in terms of public conversation. And so I remember going to like this really crowded bar uh, oh, no. and just like being packed in, just like, oh, I hope I don't get sick. Um, and everyone at the party was fine. Like, as far as I know, no one got sick. There was no like anything, but looking back, I'm just like, oh, danger. Oh God. <laughs> Oh, uh, dear Lord. And before that, I had been, I'd gone to see uh, The Invisible Man. So I was sitting in like a crowded movie theater. It's just like, oh my God, I'm so grateful that I didn't get sick. It's crazy. Well, because like, for me, when, uh, when COVID first started really becoming like a news story, it reminded me of, of SARS from like 2012 or whatever which never really took hold here. It was something that was a big problem in China, but it never really became a big issue here. And so in my mind, that was just kind of what was happening again. I didn't Mm -hmm. think that it was going to become a big problem here. Little did we know a year later, China's got things mostly under control and we're a mess. So (laughs) yeah, but but that was just, yeah, I, I wasn't really giving it a lot of thought because of that. Well, I don't think any of us were, but it, it seemed like that sort of thing. It's just like, oh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's going to be like, um, you know, the swine flu a mm-hmm. couple of years ago. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, so that's not going to be, it's not really going to be a big deal. And if I get sick, well, I get a little sick, fine, whatever. But right. yeah, but that's the thing. People were talking about it. Like, well, it's, it's the flu basically. And, mm-hmm. and that was the way that most of us publicly at least understood it. And then it became clearer and clearer. It's like, oh, it's not the flu oh no (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and well and then you start thinking through exactly like you did i went to the movies i went to this crowded bar and i was thinking like i was at sundance i was at the academy awards (laughs) (laughs) like how did these not become major super spreader events you know yeah there there are definitely times i'm like i think i probably dodged a bullet in a lot of places like not even knowing that i did (laughs) yeah yeah it's so true it's crazy Uh, crazy times but yes i'm Uh, half vaccinated so i'm yay feeling a lot a lot better but now we just need to get everybody vaccinated i was gonna say so this podcast is one quarter vaccinated (laughs) (laughs) yep uh so doing not doing bad actually when you really look at it um Mm -hmm. 
So, so I think today um, we're going to kind of continue on to talk about uh, various things in Black History Month, and we thought it would be interesting to talk about sort of the classical period of Hollywood and and also outside of Hollywood in the same period, um, the way that that black characters are represented positively, negatively in all of the weird racist combinations um, and then so, and some like actual progressive movement that was that was made certainly in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and then it kind of petered out for a while and came back more in the 1950s and uh, so I think we have a lot of different things to talk about, but um, one of the first things I wanted to, to just mention is this concept of the race film. And the race film or the race movie was uh, the, the idea of films that were made with largely um, black casts, uh, very often by black filmmakers, although not necessarily under um, black studio executives. Um, and these were directed particularly at Black people in the United States, particularly in the South, uh, where you had major segregation between white theaters and Black theaters. And so there, a lot of studios saw a chance for profit, basically, that you make these films that, um, that Black viewers want to go see. Uh, and they're very often low budget, but they can often actually show a much more nuanced vision of black characters than what you often get in, um, in the, the, the white studio films. Um, so one of the first black films or race films that, um, that people talk about is The Homesteader, which we talked about last week, that is the 1919 film by Oscar Micheaux. Um, so a lot of Oscar Micheaux's films kind of fall into this category, even though I would hesitate a little bit to call them race films because these are films that are produced independently um, by a studio that is, is owned and run by a, a black filmmaker. Yeah, I think they get, they, um, maybe this is an incorrect way of, of looking at it and, and looking at what Hollywood was doing at the time, but I feel like they get put into that category because they kind of created the category like I think that Oscar Micheaux by being an independent filmmaker mm -hmm. who was making these movies and getting people to show up and see them I think that there were some in Hollywood that went well all right there's some money to be made on this yeah. and so they kind of created opportunities or allowed opportunities I'm not sure which it would which would be more correct but um allowed opportunities for filmmakers to uh to make these types of films and then just like categorize them as race films um yeah and, and it does well to point out that a lot of the time these films were not shown to white audiences right um so these was these were often shown in segregated theaters mm -hmm. um which means that this is basically uh sometimes black filmmakers and sometimes white filmmakers sort of offering a um hollywoodized vision of black people to other black people <laughs> right so this and that and it it's an interesting kind of dichotomy because on the one hand you're going like well this is kind of this is this is interesting these are films that are being made in the 20s and 30s that are uh all black casts and in that sense, you're like, well, that's kind of progressive. And on the other hand, when you actually look at the films, you're like, a lot of them are very much reinforcing stereotypes, um, are, are very much sort of low budget uh, films that are being produced to kind of, to entertain, but not necessarily to advance in any way the, the racial conversation or anything like that. And you're also talking about the fact that white people aren't watching them. Right. Um, in, in large measures, right? So you don't have the white mainstream being exposed to any of this or being like, okay, this is something that is, um, that like actually has artistic value. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's a really interesting kind of tension because so some of the films that were made back then, um, so you have the Oscar Micheaux films, um, Spencer Williams, who is best known as one half of the team of Amos and Andy made a number of these kinds of films. He made a film called The Blood of Jesus in, I think it's like 19, 1941. 40, yeah. Yeah, 1941. And uh, another one, uh, Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, which is from 1946. And again, some of these films are somewhat stereotyped. There's a lot of stuff about um, 
the relationship between kind of faith and uh, and tem and temptation, right, and sin. Um, and very often it is a black woman who kind of uh, seduces the good black man away from home and hearth and causes all kinds of problems for him. And eventually he has to get faith in order to sort of escape from her clutches or whatever. So one of the issues that I think comes up in a lot of these films is this, this issue of the black woman as, as temptress on the one side, and then or as the kind of representation of the home and of safety and of God, et cetera. So it's, it, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. It's complicated and it's, it's interesting, definitely. We're both white women. So uh, I think that we should probably talk about it. It's interesting watching it from the perspective, not just of white women, but of white women, you know, obviously living in 2021, who have very different understandings of, um, of race than yeah. we would have in like 1941. Yeah. Um, well, and it's, it's funny because, not funny, not, I, I don't mean funny, like, oh, that's hilarious. But, you know, growing up and watching as many movies as I did and, and just being really interested in film from an early age, you know, I would see these, some of these films with, with, um, I never really watched any of the race films. I didn't even know about them um, until much later, but, you know, I would see Gone with the Wind, for example, and see these, these mammy type characters or whatever. And in my head, I thought, well, you know, these actors are choosing these roles, so they must be fine with the way that they're being shown. Yeah. I had no concept of like, sometimes to make it, you take whatever you can get. <laughs> and, you know, and like, I just, I just didn't understand that. And so I thought by accepting those roles, they were also, um, in a way, accepting those portrayals and it's it's interesting looking now on that and looking at what some of those what some of those roles and what some of those stereotypes being reinforced for so many decades did and how it really did set back in some some ways directly and indirectly um you know the ability of of non-white people to progress in the industry and just in society in general there were so many roles that were essentially closed out mm -hmm. to black actors and actresses this so you so in in white films right in studio mainstream studio films pretty much didn't have a choice right you you were the maid or yeah. the butler or the chauffeur or the comic relief you know we talked a little bit about stereotypes um uh last week but those kind of those stereotypes that you fall into and every once in a while you begin to see nuance in the in the stereotypes but they're still stereotypes and there is this temptation i think as a white viewer to be like well the, they must have been okay with it because they played the roles it's like well this is their this is how they make their living you know um and and someone like hattie mcdaniel who as, as we discussed last week got typecast obviously she was kind of pushed into this very particular role as the mammy figure and she made a long career out of it she won an oscar from playing it um and she was i mean she couldn't even go to the, the oscar ceremony to take to accept her oscar because it was segregated mm -hmm. um and and so that tension seemed to exist for a lot of actors and actresses, the knowledge that they are in some way, uh, that they're some way doing a disservice to, to their, you know, to their community or whatever. But at the same time, that they're the only representations of black people on screen. They're the only representations sometimes that black people have of themselves on screen. Right. And that's, that's a really difficult thing I think to navigate um one one of the things i wanted to mention just about uh, race films and particularly the race films that were produced by larger hollywood studios um and this this is this is related to a question from uh from nanina uh, at N nanina gilder the complexity of most race films um 
made by major studios had black cast, but were directed, produced, and even written by white people. So the studios are profiting off of black audiences' hunger for representation without giving creative control. And that's true. I mean, one of the major race films uh, is a film called Hallelujah, which is a film with a primarily black cast uh, that was directed by a white man. It was directed by King Vidor. And one of the, and it's interesting because if you look up the history of Hallelujah, King Vidor actually had to fight to get this film made because he wanted, in his view, and this, this is interesting, I think, as it comes to the way that white people understand themselves and understand their relationship to black people. Um, in his view, he wanted to, he didn't like the representations of black people on screen because he felt that it was, um, it was not complex, it was, you know, paternalistic, etc. So he was like, well, I want to make a film that actually shows black people as I understand them. And of course, he's this white guy. <laughs> um, but his whole goal with the film was actually to produce a more nuanced representation of black people than uh, he felt had been had been shown beforehand. So Hallelujah is this very odd film where you're on the one hand going like well I can see the the complexity that he's finding in these characters but this is still very much a paternalistic white man's view of what black people are and or you know maybe what they should be so it's a very it's a very odd film and if you look up any I I, I encourage people to go and read like some commentary on Hallelujah, because there is a fascinating split between what white critics say about the film and what black critics have to say about the film. But for the I'm most part, <laughs> for the most part, for the most part, people are like, well, it's an important film because of what he was trying to do, which is, is in some ways laudable. On the other hand, it has all of these various problems, including this concept of the the bad black woman as the temptress of a good man who leads him astray and then eventually he has to um he has to become faithful hmm. in order to in order to rescue himself but it i mean you know if you want a stereotype you, that the film has every single stereotype <laughs> you can imagine it has the mammy character it has the sort of i mean the entire film begins with this family working in the cotton fields singing about how wonderful cotton is. Uh, oh. And now this is also representing uh, a black family that makes their own money. They're not working for anyone. They work for themselves and they sell their cotton um, down in the, in the big city. I don't think it's ever specified what city they're going to. Mm -hmm. um, but so they have a degree of independence uh, from sort of every from everything they're not this is not a slave film this is not um this is not even black people working for white people or anything there are no white people in the film this is entirely a black cast and it's it's a i mean it's a deeply problematic film but it is it's a fascinating one at the same time well the marketing on it is interesting because i have not actually seen it but if you look at the posters they make such a big deal of making sure to tell people like hey this is the first feature film with an all-black cast which was not true but um but you know they they really wanted to make people feel like if they were somehow accomplishing something important by going to see this movie or by the fact that the movie was made <laughs> I think it's it's the first feature film with an all-black cast made by a major studio. Yeah. <laughs> which is many caveats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but but so, so that film is directed by King Vidor. Another one of the, the famous ones is Cabin in the Sky, which is much later, but it was the first film directed by uh, Vincent Minnelli. So again, you've got an all-black cast performing and performing certain roles that are written and directed by white people mm -hmm. and that there is that tension but I think that there is that tension in pretty much every film that you want to talk about in this period uh, at least within the classical Hollywood period because you've got like well on the one hand you were getting representation and nuance but on the other hand this is really stereotypical and it's still being controlled by white people yeah well the thing is that we still again this is still something that we see today you know and like i mean i'm thinking of, there are certain films like last year dolomite is my name or i guess 2019 was mm -hmm. a fantastic movie written um i believe if i'm correct on this written by two white men 
directed by a white man but the story uh eddie murphy heavily contributed to the story and he was a producer who was actively involved in what the final film would look like so i think that that one works really well but then you've got other films like malcolm and marie which came out just a couple weeks ago which is written and directed by a white man with a very big grudge (laughs) that he was trying to you know uh trying to get off his chest i guess and and it's unclear how involved zendaya and john david washington were in that how that story shaped Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like they had a lot to to say about it um it feels like this is very much a white man's story being told through two black voices and that's yeah so it's like i look at that and it's like some there are some examples where things are done very well but it really depends on who is working not just on the screen but who's working behind the scenes in helping tell those stories and helping bring them out well and i i think that regardless there's always there's always an issue if you're talking about a, a a story about black people that is being written and directed by white people Mm -hmm. um however well-intentioned the white people are and again someone like king vidor is well-intentioned if you Mm -hmm. read anything about him um he thinks that he's doing something that's good that doesn't mean that what that his perspective is the correct one right and 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 particularly when we're talking about this we're also talking about the perspective of men um generally on black women and that becomes an even more fraught issue so you know talking about someone like spencer williams uh and the choices that he makes in representing women black, and, and in representing black women so again you're still using these stereotypes that are damaging that are are you know the this whole idea of um the exoticism of of black women and that's being used by black filmmakers sometimes Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you've got black male filmmakers who are exoticizing black women, and you kind of begin to ask, like, okay, who's the intended audience here? Yeah. Is the is you know is this really about black people, or is this more about you know your view of what a black woman should be? All of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah and again i mean just going back to what we were talking about with hattie mcdaniel and how she became typecast and how i mean when these are the roles that are available to you and this is something that you really feel called to do or compelled to do you really want to be in film you're going to take what you can get and hope for the best um but yeah we have so many so many representation or so many examples of representation that really uh isn't isn't great but it did lead to some uh some great careers (laughs) (laughs) it did lead to some great careers and and i think hannah mcdaniel is is kind of the she she tends to be the poster the poster child for for okay (laughs) representations of black women in hollywood um well she becomes the go-to default i think because the fact that she won an oscar um and i mean and it would be another 50 10 years or something before um and she was in a supporting role so it was not until the 50s that uh so i guess 15 years um that we would have an actress not a black actress nominated in a lead role so Mm -hmm. uh yeah so i think hattie mcdaniel becomes sort of the like see they're they were they were rewarding black people back in the 30s like well but were they it's it's hollywood kind of and and she comes up a lot when hollywood wants to kind of pat itself on the back and be like we were really progressive it's just like yeah but you you weren't at all no um and on the other side of that someone like uh butterfly mcqueen who appears in the same film uh who who also appears in gone with the wind was excoriated for her performance Mm -hmm. um and again you're talking about actresses who are trying to make careers and are very confined with what they're allowed to be and how and what they're allowed to do on screen yeah and they're and some of them are turning in these very nuanced performances but they're only limited to very certain things mm-hmm. um a, another another actress who kind of ma- again made a career out of playing the 
the, the mammy character, it was Louise Beavers, who appears, uh, she, she's in a lot of films, but in fact, she was in, um, I think she was in, she done him wrong. <laughs> she plays Mae West's maid. I think so. Uh, and she's great. She's hilarious on, on the one side. And then you're also like, I am uncomfortable with this. <laughs> um, but in uh, she kind of made a, a major splash when she was in the 1934 version of Imitation of Life, where she has, she doesn't share title credit, but she basically should um, with Claudette Colbert, which is about based essentially the relationship between um, uh, a black maid and her sort of white employer, and they are their employer employee. They're also friends. They uh, raise their daughters together, and so the film actually deals with all kinds of of things like um, issues of colorism, issues of racism, uh, issues of power, and and there are some very problematic things that go on in this film. But it is probably one of the more nuanced representations of, uh, of the relationship between white women and black women that you're gonna get in the 1930s. And Louise Beavers was, was criticized a great deal uh, for her kind of portrayal of the maid and the mammy character, et cetera. And her reaction was, was essentially, you know, that's what I play on screen, that's not who I am. And that's, a, that's an important thing to note that the, again, these women were being almost forced into or trapped in very specific roles, much in the same way that black men were. Um, there wasn't much that they could do beyond that, right? So some of it becomes a question of, okay, well, within that kind of constraint, what were they able to accomplish? And people like Hetty McDaniel and Louise Beavers were, were able to accomplish a great deal. Um, Imitation of Life in particular has, uh, she, she's wonderful in it and it's melodramatic and there are lots of problematic stereotypes, but it, it does have a great deal of nuance and a great deal of complexity and her performance in particular um, makes the film. Without her, it's just, it actually would cease to be an interesting movie. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like you look at these, at these actresses, you look at the characters that that they were playing i mean scroll through louise beaver's uh, imdb page and just look at the names of the characters that she played it's like the maid uncredited maid uncredited maid uncredited washroom attendant maddie natalie's maid <laughs> you know and it's just like all these characters but you think about what would have happened if she would have just said you know what i don't want to play a maid i'm not going to do this and just wasn't part of of hollywood just didn't do these movies what if every black actress at the time just said i wasn't i'm not going to do this what would have ended up happening they would have changed the way they told stories they would have not created room for black actresses at all and it i think it would have not to excuse again I, I feel like i have to really be careful how i phrase things just because i don't want to sound like i'm i'm excusing or or permitting anything that went on yeah. but but it's just you know it's almost like because of the fact that they were willing to put themselves into these roles and willing to accept these these situations they did in many ways off screen create a lot of opportunities that some some of which wouldn't have been realized for a couple of decades but they did open a lot of doors for for future actresses to to have more opportunities yeah, I, I think that the the blame should always fall upon the white filmmakers yes. and, the white, and the white mainstream that forced these women into these roles, mm -hmm. not the women themselves. Right. Um, but this this is always one of the complicated issues when you're talking about any race generally in, in classical Hollywood, because when you're talking about anyone who's not white, <laughs> um, <laughs> and that can include Italians, by the way. Yep. <laughs> um, but when you're talking about anyone who is not white in in these films, uh, you're you're talking about people that are forced into stereotypes, and a lot of white people are forced into stereotypes as well. But there is far more nuance. Mm -hmm. um, classical Hollywood is is just a wealth of stereotypes. Um, Unlike but, today, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're going to talk about that in a minute. But but yeah, it's it's important to note not that that these roles should be excused, but that we should not attach blame 
necessarily to the actors and actresses who chose to play them, but exactly. rather to, to attach blame to the system that forced them to play just that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like I said, there, and there are gradations, I think there are some, and, and you get in some films, um, you get these extreme stereotypes that are just like shockingly offensive now. Um, and then honestly, we're probably shockingly offensive in, in 1940 as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you do get nuanced performances. You do get people that make, you do get films that, that are, are more interested in examining these relationships than, than other films. Um, one of the things I did want to say about Imitation of Life, and this is simply because I've just watched it, uh, there's a sequence and it, it was an interesting one. And, um, and it's one that, you know, it's hard to know what to, to make of it, but there's a sequence where basically the, the Louise Beavers character, her daughter, is uh, very light-skinned and her daughter spends a lot of the film kind of hating the fact that she's black and trying to pass as a white person uh, at which she succeeds at for the most part and so there's this tension between the mother and the daughter all the time and at one point her her daughter who's now grown up keeps on calling her mother and she begins to break down in tears and says I'm not I'm your mammy I'm not your mother I'm not a white woman and that was one of the, I think it's one of the first times that I actually saw that talked about in terms of the way that the words are used um, in a film like that. And it, it is this pushback against like, tr- stop trying to make me into the white mother that you wish I was. Um, that's not who I am. And that it, it was, it's fascinating. And again, I don't, I don't think I have enough experience in the linguistics of all of this to really be able to draw a conclusion about it, but it, it felt important at, at some level, I guess is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is by, by the way, uh, the, the 1934 version of Imitation of Life is right now in, um, Criterion Channel. It is very worth it. Uh, it's problematic as hell, but it is definitely something to like actually watch and kind of think about. Cool. Uh, so you know, as as time goes on, you begin to get uh, again more more representations of of black people generally. Um, with a greater degree of nuance and actually black people leading film, leading Hollywood films. So you have uh, actresses like Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge. Um, much earlier, you have actresses like Josephine Baker, who again, kind of on the one hand was in a great deal of control of her image, but also was in, in most of her Hollywood output was essentially performing that, that kind of exoticism uh, that gets associated with young black women. Um, so let's see, what else do we want to talk about? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I th- think we should talk a little bit about Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. So Dandridge kind of, um, she, the, the height of her career is Carmen Jones and, uh, and then later Porgy and Bess. And she is an interest, again, an interesting figure uh, because she was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress in Carmen Jones. And Carmen Jones is sometimes considered to be a race film, which I find a bit odd. I guess it's because it's a primarily black cast, but it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It doesn't feel like this is definitely a mainstream film and is definitely being marketed, not just to black audiences. It's being marketed to to all audiences. but she's an interesting figure uh, because she's a very light-skinned Black woman um, and in some ways becomes almost a more acceptable version of Blackness uh, in the 1950s than if she was darker skin. And that, that's one of the things that has always been criticized about, uh, about kind of the way that Hollywood treated her. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so she, she ends up getting nominated for an Oscar and um it's i mean it was 19 i'm trying to i'm trying to find the part because i wanted to see who she lost to she lost to grace kelly in yeah country girl yeah and 
that yeah. that's an interest that is uh hmm, that's an interesting dichotomy right there <laughs> uh, yeah definitely but it's also kind of one of those things where if you look at kind of the trajectory of where grace kelly was at the time i mean we know that the awards aren't really about who is actually the best it's always about like who ran the best campaign who they want to give it to uh that kind of thing there's lots of reasons but um but it's just it's it was important and it was significant that Dandridge was was nominated, that she was part of that lineup. And uh, and it's it's one of those situations where it's like it would be years before another black actress would have that opportunity. And it would be until 2001 before a black actress would win that category. And it took almost 50 years from the first nomination to the time someone actually won. And it's, it just, it's one of those things where, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about this. I mean, we've talked a lot about it just today, but Hollywood's, Hollywood's view of themselves and uh, their very, very slow response to, um, to accept anything that's outside of the standard white, you know, um, i don't know category whatever but um you know it's just like they have this very specific box that they for many many decades mm-hmm. had everyone in and if you didn't fit into that occasionally they'd throw you a bone but that was it and um and, well, and it just yeah sorry yeah i know so, well if you think about if you look at carmen jones so carmen jones is, is uh dorothy dandridge and harry belafonte it's directed by otter preminger so it's directed by a white guy mm-hmm. um and it's based on the opera carmen which is and, and so it's based on a musical by hammerstein right. which is based on the opera carmen which is about this dangerous woman who seduces a, a soldier <laughs> right so yeah. you have Dorothy Dandridge, who, who again, in, in some ways, I'm not, I don't want to say that it's, it's equivalent to, to the Hattie McDaniel thing, but there, there's this continuum of, of Dandridge sort of fitting into the correct role, right? Mm-hmm. So she is, she's the black woman who is dangerous. She is going to seduce men away from the light or whatever. Um, and so she's fitting, while again, you're talking about a much more nuanced vision of uh, what a Black woman is and what a Black woman should be, still fitting into a very stereotypical role. Right. Like if you, uh, if you just look at the lineup that year, if you had put Dorothy Dandridge in Judy Garland's role in A Star is Born or in Audrey Hepburn's role in Sabrina, those movies aren't even getting made in 1954 <laughs> oh my god i would have sabrina with dorothy dandridge sounds amazing like Doesn't it? that god that, that would just add so much more interesting stuff oh, to that film it really wow. really would but that's the thing is like those movies wouldn't have gotten made in 1954 yeah. let alone yeah, her true. getting nominated for an oscar for it yeah no it, it would have been impossible like it, I, it would not have been allowed literally mm-hmm. by the system the exactly. system would not have permitted it um <laughs> Yeah, but but that that again, I think that a lot of what we're talking about really is about this dichotomy. It's it's sort of on the one hand, but on the other. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. Well, on the one hand, this is very positive. This is a step forward. This is you know she's and I think that she was actually not just the first uh, Af- African American woman to be nominated for a, a a lead role, but the first African American person period to be nominated for a lead role i'm trying to think when sydney poitier was first nominated i think that it might have been later for for a lead for a lead role probably yeah yeah so not for supporting but for lead um and that's but again you're you're kind of like okay well that's very significant on the other hand there are issues that are attached to this uh I don't know. It's yeah. He was first nominated in 1959, so yeah, five years later. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the this is this has always been one of those those complicated things of of the fact the fact that even just casting black people in lead roles so often it has to make a point of their blackness, mm-hmm. and it has to deal with the fact that they are black. And on the one hand, you want you want this, you want in a certain sense. Uh, blind casting 
but on the other hand, you're like, but at the same time, you have to, you have to be able to recognize this because otherwise we're not going to talk about the issues of racism in, um, in, in Hollywood film. Right. I don't know. It's complicated. And I think it's really difficult to navigate sometimes um, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But then um, we've got some amazing, sorry, I, I just was thinking through, like, because I was looking at your list of, of actresses that you included, and I was just thinking of, of these and a few others that um, go back to sort of the classic period or just a little bit after that, and even are still working today or have been up until fairly recently. Um, uh, like, I mean, you mentioned Eartha Kitt um who had such an interesting career (laughs) Um, (laughs) interesting personal life too i think the earth the kid is what we all want to be at some level (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh definitely definitely i mean she's even just got the coolest name but (laughs) but you know i mean she just she she started she i mean she's if you look at her her filmography she's done every kind of genre you can imagine she's done i mean she got started back in the 50s um she was working you know right up until like this century doing some voiceover work and stuff so i mean it's just been she was one that that really um was available to many generations or several generations of of film and tv watchers and um every year at christmas time we still get to hear her version of santa baby which is the only one that's worth listening to um (laughs) she was the best cat woman (laughs) she was in multiple ways (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah Um, well and then someone else uh ruby d who, you know, and again, and, and at this point, we're getting beginning to edge out of classical Hollywood a little bit because you're getting into the late 40s into the early 50s, when a lot of sort of the barriers are not, not gone, but they're beginning to crumble a bit more. Yeah. Um, and so you have Ruby D appearing in films like, uh, like the, the Jackie Robinson story, but then a good, a little bit later, she's doing films like A Raisin in the Sun. And um, one of my favorites from the, the mid to late sixties, um, Uptight, which is, which she also co-wrote. And in some ways that's almost more important just than her performance in that film, although she's excellent in the film, but it's an adaptation of, um, uh, the Informer, which was made by John Ford in, in the 1930s, but it, it updates The Informer to the civil rights conflict. And it was filmed, it was actually made directly after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And mm-hmm. so that is, uh, that's part of the fabric of the film. But she is, she's an incredible performer, first of all, just as an actress, but she's playing roles that are again, way outside of what would have been acceptable in the 1930s and 40s for, for Black women. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a, a move forward. And again, I think that the, part of that and part of the reason that was able to happen was because of the fact that we did have women in the 30s and 40s and 50s that were willing to lay that groundwork for yeah. for people like ruby d to to move ahead and to to really uh to really go the next step and get to expand what was possible mm-hmm. so yeah but it shouldn't have taken that honestly no <laughs> like, none of this should have taken this long and no. you know and this is where it's just it's you know again two white ladies but we're also women and we've seen we've waited a long time to see a lot of positive representations of women by women and so uh not that that's the same thing but i think that that gives us um more empathy and understanding in in sort of the challenges of of what was going on than like white dudes have but (laughs) at least the typical white dude but um but yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know what I want to say, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we have just such amazing 
amazing performers and of course like we just just recently lost Cicely Tyson Mm -hmm. just a couple weeks ago who was another one that I mean she was in her 90s and she had another she had an amazing career just you know just like what we were saying with Eartha Kitt and with Ruby D I mean she she's crossed generations she Mm -hmm. had you know she was there back when my mom was growing up watching movies and she's been in movies that my nephew has seen and loved from you know now so she yeah just another really amazing career and she got the opportunity to really play some interesting really really cool roles in in her lifetime too and uh nominated for an oscar Mm -hmm. uh should have been more than one (laughs) but um but they did kind of make it up to her by giving her an honorary oscar last year um but well that's something (laughs) it is something it's definitely not enough and she should have she should have been nominated for lots of awards in her career but but sounder she's great in that (laughs) so uh yeah and and i do think that i think we discussed this a little bit um actually before we started recording but this this question of some of the stereotypes that we've actually been discussing continuing to carry through to the contemporary period Mm -hmm. um and i i think that one of the things if we remember the film ma that came out a couple couple years ago uh which I remember when I saw the trailer for that because I was like, on the one hand, this I don't know about this. On the other hand, are they actually going to do like the the mammy character gets revenge on a bunch of white people? Because if they are, I am down for that. And the film the film doesn't quite do that, but it definitely edges in that direction, which I quite liked. Well, yeah, but- I think that she uses. I don't think it's ever. It. Yeah, it's never overtly stated. But she uses that that persona to lure these kids into this sense of security. Yeah, that, that's just like, oh, I'm the I'm the sort of friendly black woman who's like, of course, mm-hmm. oh, I love all you kids and everything. It's just like I'm going to destroy your lives one by one because um, your parents suck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh that's, man, uh... I love I love that silly, ridiculous movie. <laughs> It's in yeah, that's an insane film. And now they're talking about they might there might be a sequel. I'm like Which, I am you know, there. We didn't see her die, so yeah. Well, she's still out there. Totally. She's still out there. Totally. Um, but but so some of these stereotypes are still are still being uncritically examined. But there are there are also stereotypes that are being sort of used and then run with. And uh, I mean, one of the films that I think does the the classical period of Hollywood the best and makes it kind of the most overt is Spike Lee's Bamboozled, um, which takes a lot of the stereotypes. It is specifically about stereotyping of black people in television and film. Um, And it takes those stereotypes and it just runs with them and it makes it terrifying. I mean, it is a funny, intense, nasty movie. And and I think that it's really worth watching for all of that. but but so I think but again you all, there's always this dichotomous relationship between what prog- what um, progress has been made and what progress hasn't been made, and the fact that we're even still talking about stereotyping we really should be beyond this at this point. We should we should be way beyond it. But um, but I'm glad to see that there are filmmakers that are getting the opportunity to to use what we know of those stereotypes and 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 flip them like what we saw a couple years ago with get out from jordan peele and how and i think in some ways i think this is why get out was more successful than us as far as like just i think overall get out is a better movie um i enjoy us but i just think that um what he's doing with get out and the way that he is using people's unconscious biases against them and he's basically shining a like holding up a mirror to us as white people and saying like oh really you think you're not racist (laughs) like (laughs) i i think it's just it's it's fascinating because he does use those things that we think that we know and understand about about the world about race relations about ourselves and how we play into that 
and and he made a whole horror movie about that and it's just it's brilliant and I'm glad that we're in this time where even though yeah you're right those stereotypes shouldn't we shouldn't still be having to to talk about these because we should be beyond this but but we're in an era where filmmakers get to call them out in very interesting and creative ways yeah absolutely and and i think get out is is a very good example of that and uh and still i mean the number of times that i have wanted to use that the bradley whitford quote uh <laughs> against other white people just sort of sort of like well i would have voted for obama <laughs> twice if i could have like it's like yeah how many progressive white people do we know that are exactly like that oh yeah yep i've Uh known so many people who have specifically said that line and it's just like yeah okay all right (laughs) so many oh my god so many Um, you know there are other black people you could vote for for president (laughs) (laughs) um so i just want to close this out with uh talking briefly about an actor who we haven't talked about in the past couple of episodes and i kind of feel like we need to address him because he was one of the few black actors who really had a great deal of control over his career. He was a major stage actor. Uh, He appeared in a number of early, uh, um, both silent films and then early, um, early sound films as the lead, right? And then kind of wound up playing more stereotypical roles slightly later on in his career, partially because he was forced to. Um, So let's talk for just a minute about Paul Robeson. Uh, who was a, a major stage actor and particularly originated a number of different parts um, on Broadway and then played them again on film. And one of his most famous roles is uh, The Emperor Jones, which is a 1933 film um, based on a play by Eugene O'Neill. And uh, and the, the film kind of adds a little bit to the play, but for the most part, it focuses on that. And it's, it's about a, um, a Pullman porter who, uh, who, is, who like escapes from a murder charge uh, and then gets caught and is sentenced to hard labor and winds up becoming um, the power the uh the emperor right the uh um the leader of a small island nation and and it's essentially about and he's he's a horrible character like he it's essentially about how this type of power corrupts and this type of power destroys but it's one of Robson's absolute best roles and again has some of those issues that we have been talking about about both the combination of representation and also vilification and um treatment of particularly in this case a black man as as overly sexual uh grasping greedy all of these things um but it, it's a it's a really fascinating film and one of the the questions that we had been asked and i i would definitely say that emperor jones is probably one of Robson's best performances the other one would be body and soul which is the oscar michaud film um but one of the questions we were asked was from at noah saturn what is your favorite paul robson movie so do you have an answer to this, Karen? Or are you just, uh, Robeson is one of those that you almost have to seek out his films sometimes. I don't think I was able to see Emperor Jones until a couple of years ago, mostly because it just wasn't available to stream anywhere. Yeah, I've only seen like three of his films. So um, I've seen most of Bonnie and Soul. Uh, I've seen Showboat and I've seen King Solomon's Minds. That's it. <laughs> So I, I don't feel like I have an answer to that question, uh, but I am going to make it a point this year to seek out as many of his films as I can. He's, he, I feel like he's one of those actors that we tend to reference, but we don't tend to watch his movies as much <laughs> or something. And some of it is because of the period that he worked in. Um, a lot there are a lot of films that just weren't preserved or aren't being released like I say exactly. it took me a while to find Emperor Jones streaming I think I actually wound up watching it on Canopy because it wasn't available oh. anywhere else yeah which um, I don't have access to Canopy so yeah I don't have access to it anymore because my my library got rid of it unfortunately boo yeah it's not cool um but so yeah Ro- Robeson is another one of those that I think definitely needs to be sought out <laughs> 
I just looked it up and it's currently on HBO Max. Really? Amber Jones? Nin- like 1933? Yeah. Wow. That's so, impressive. <laughs> yeah. So according, this is according to Just Watch. It's on Prime Video, HBO Max, Stars, and the Criterion Channel. Really? I did not realize that. Well, that's good. All right. Everybody go out and watch Emperor Jones. <laughs> you have like 18 different ways to do it. So no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> I will watch it this week. But he was probably one of the few uh, black actors of that period who made a who like actually was a major black star um i i honestly can't think of anyone else who's comparable to him uh in the the 1930s particularly no definitely not i mean we would see more come about later but not in the 30s it was him yeah so I think that that is going to close us out. Uh, we have had an interesting conversation. Of course, once again, we are very white. Um, We're so, 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 so white. So this is obviously from a very white perspective. And you're and welcome to hold that against us. We yeah, don't mind. <laughs> in fact, you, prob- you probably should. But I, I think that this is at least important to talk about, even if we don't probably don't pick up on a lot of the nuance or a lot of the issues that we really, that we really should. We're, we're trying. Um, so thank you so much for listening to us. We are going to talk a little bit more about some uh, later Black films, particularly Black exploitation and um, Black-centric horror films from the 1970s, and then you get into the 80s, and all sorts of interesting things begin happening. Um, so those are just imagine if we had Candyman to talk about now instead of sometime later this year. Oh God. So sad. Yeah, we just have the original Candyman to talk, which about. is also great, but not. It's not going to be the same. No, it isn't. Um, like, first of all, I think the, the original Candyman is directed by a white guy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> there's that. So, yep. Not by Nia DaCosta. <laughs> so, thank you so much for listening to us. And as always, we want to spe- we want to send out a, a special thank you to our patrons, who include Adriana Ali, uh, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty. Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Robert, uh, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Um, Thank you so much, you guys. And we do have a a new bonus episode that just recently went up where we covered Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, If you really want to listen to two white ladies talk about that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I just put that in the description too. I was like, this is, if you want to hear two white women talk about this movie, here you go. also also please go there's so many like good there's so much good coverage and in fact i think i'm going to attach some articles to this this particular one Mm -hmm. um there's so much good coverage and discussion of the classical period of uh black cinema um uh, by black academics and black writers because those really are the voices that need to have dominance in this whole conversation um and there are also some great out some links too. Yeah, uh, there are also some great reviews of Judas and the Black Messiah specifically uh, by not white people. Yes, much better <laughs> than ours. <laughs> so, but you do have that bonus episode if you want to go listen to it. And uh, we're going to be bringing out some more bonus content before long. So thank you so much, you guys, for uh, for patronizing us. It is the only way we will we will allow people to do that. If you do want to join our Patreon, that's at patreon.com slash citizen dame. And we have t- we have more modified tiers and I think everything is a lot more easily navigable. Um, you can also kick us a couple of dollars on our Ko-Fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And we have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where you can buy face masks because even if you're vaccinated, you should still be wearing a face mask. Darn right. Uh, we also have our website at uh, citizendamepod.com where we've got reviews and Blu-ray reviews and commentaries and all kinds of fun stuff. And if you want to send us an email to ask us questions or to praise us to the skies, we our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. And of course, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod. You can also get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. We will talk to y'all next week. Bye. Can anyone live with Eartha Kitt? That's not for me to decide. Not for someone who decides to live with me to decide. Not for me.
But are you willing to compromise within a relationship? To compromise? What is compromising? Compromising for what? Compromising for what reason? To compromise for what? To compromise. What is compromise? If a man came into your life, wouldn't you want to compromise? Ah! <laughs> Stupid. <laughs>